In the well-known story, The Prince and the Pauper, two boys who look very similar accidentally switch places far longer than they attend while admiring the benefits the other had. Tom, who is a lowly beggar, takes the place of the prince for the riches it brought. And Edward takes the place of a lowly beggar for the freedom that it brought. And as they live in each other's shoes, they come to find their world incredibly changed as a result. One of the most startling realizations for both of them is how different they were treated based on who others thought them to be. Tom, now believed to be a prince, finds himself with those ready to serve him at the drop of a pin. While Edward, now believed to be a poor beggar, suddenly finds himself a laughingstock as people do not serve him like he commands them to. What is clear is that people relate to both of them far differently when they believe them to be someone that they are not. And in the end, this mattered when the two finally switched back. The true prince of England, Edward, rewards those who related to him rightly while punishing those who did not. In a similar way, as we come to today's text, Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, we find people relating to Jesus differently based on their belief of who he is. And while we'll see several different ways that people relate to Jesus, this text here this morning urges each and every one of us to relate to Jesus as our all-important Savior and Lord. So would you read this account with me? Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. We read, It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. As we come back to Mark chapter 14 here this morning, we're given the reminder from Mark that it is now two days 
before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. During this festival, many Jews traveled to Jerusalem, and the size of the city would swell to two to three times its normal size. It's also during this time that we're told that the religious leaders are once again looking for a way to kill Jesus. This is the fourth time that we've read their intentions. The leaders want Jesus dead more than ever before because Jesus has put them to shame in debate and he's also called out their absolute blatant hypocrisy. But more than this, they fear that Jesus is going to take away their power and their influence that they love above everything else. So they continue to plan and plot the murder of Jesus. As they discuss how to best do this here, they recognize that they can't arrest Jesus publicly during the festival. For if they do, they risk the people rioting. For the people believed Jesus, many of them, to be the Messiah. And if the Romans had to intervene to put down this riot, they would surely hold the religious leaders accountable for the ones causing it. To add to this, Passover was always a time where the Jews were easily excited and stirred up as they thought of the redemption from Egypt. They remembered God delivering his people from the clutches of Pharaoh, from the clutches of slavery. And they would long for a similar redemption from the Romans, whom they were now enslaved to. So the religious leaders would have a very, very difficult time coming up with a way to arrest Jesus during this time without upsetting the crowds. Now Mark here will eventually get to how these leaders plan to kill Jesus at the end of our passage here this morning, but not before inserting a story here. And he does this so that we would compare and contrast certain elements surrounding Jesus's coming death. And we'll explore those later on here this morning. So after telling us the plans of the religious leaders for the fourth time here, Mark then zooms over to Jesus, who is in Bethany, the city right outside of Jerusalem. And he's at the house of Simon the leper. Now we don't know who Simon is, as it was a very, very common name, but he may have been a leper that Jesus healed. We really don't know for certain. But what Mark does tell us is that while Jesus is at dinner in this home, a woman suddenly enters the room. A woman that apparently isn't invited as she comes in while they are eating. And with her, she carries a very, very expensive perfume in an alabaster jar. The finest of perfumes were carried in that type of jar. And the type of perfume mentioned here would have certainly been imported from India, adding to its expense. It's estimated that its equivalent worth would have been something like the average full year's salary in that single jar of perfume alone. So to put that into modern terms for us in America, we're talking something like $50,000 to $60,000 in that single jar alone. It was expensive. And because it was so expensive, it's likely that this was also a family heirloom that was passed down 
from mother to daughter over many, many years. It was prized on more than one level. So this woman takes what is the most precious thing in her possession, and what does she do with it? She breaks it, and then she pours the entire jar of perfume on Jesus' head. That's what we read here. You know, it's, it's one thing just to pour a little bit of it and, and to save it, but she doesn't do that. She, she breaks the jar so they can't be saved and then empties it entirely over Jesus. Jesus gets bathed in this richly scented perfume. So how does this event strike you as we read it this morning? What, what goes through your mind as you imagine this scene playing out? Like, like seriously, imagine someone not invited to your dinner, waltzing right in, and then going to your distinguished guest of honor, and then pouring this incredibly expensive perfume on his or her head. Like, like, what are you thinking? Like, what do you do in this moment as you're witnessing these things? Maybe you're thinking, this person is insane. Or maybe you're thinking, there goes $50,000 down the drain. Maybe you would be too shocked to know what to say or to even think. Well, as we look at the disciples' response here in the text, we find that their response is more or less like this. We find that some of them, we're not told who, were even furious and enraged at this woman. They were indignant or filled with great anger towards her. They strongly question why she would waste this incredibly valuable perfume on Jesus. Instead of pouring it down the drain and wasting it, they tell her, you should have sold this perfume for 300 denarii, again, equivalent to a year's salary, and then give it to the poor. At least it would have done some good that way. But no, you had to go and waste it on Jesus. So this brings us to a question. Why does the woman pour out the most valuable thing in her possession upon Jesus? And are the disciples and the others in that room right that it was a waste? As we witness these things play out, I think we begin to see two different ways of relating to Jesus. The woman relates to Jesus as all-important and worthy of everything that she has, and it's this belief that causes her to pour out the most valuable thing in her possession upon Jesus. By doing this, she is ascribing to Jesus his immeasurable worth to her and to those around her. She is in essence saying that Jesus is everything to her, and she's trying to honor him in this extravagant way. But how do the others relate to Jesus? Instead, they, they scoff in utter disbelief that such perfume would be wasted on Jesus. Sure, Jesus is important, but certainly not important enough to have the entire contents of this perfume poured out on him like that. Unlike this woman, they relate to him as less than everything. And so her act of extravagant love for Jesus offends them. 
and they began to point out the way she could have used her time and money in more significant ways. And it wasn't on Jesus. Well, Jesus doesn't have any of it at all. No, he intervenes here when they begin to attack this woman. And he tells them, point blank, leave her alone. And then he asks why they are scolding her. Because in Jesus' eyes, this woman has done a great and noble thing for him. Far from it being a waste, as they suppose, Jesus sees it as a wonderful act of love and devotion to him. And then he goes on to further explain, you always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. In other words, it's good to do good things for the poor, and the poor will always be there, but as for this occasion, this occasion at hand demands that Jesus be elevated even above the poor. Why? Because Jesus will not always be there with them. Why won't Jesus always be there with them? Because he's about to die. He's about to be rejected. He's about to be mocked. He's about to be scorned. And in the next couple of days, he will be crucified on a cross. And so Jesus says, this is appropriate. This is fitting. This is right. This is the kind of affection and love that I deserve. So whether or not the woman knows the full implications of her actions, she's not only signifying Christ's infinite worth, but she's also preparing his body in advance for his coming death. The coming death that Jesus has been telling his disciples about over and over and over again. And while his disciples don't lavish this kind of affection and love for him, despite his coming death, here we find an unnamed woman in the Gospel of Mark doing what they should have been doing all along. And so Jesus further commends and praises this woman as he tells us that wherever the Gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, What she has done will also be told in memory of her. What high praise and honor from Jesus. What a far cry from her act being worthless or devoid of meaning. Even as we speak of what this woman has done, we fulfill Jesus' word here this morning. She's demonstrated extravagant love and devotion to Jesus, and in so doing, prepared his body for his coming death. We speak these things in memory of her. And so this teaches us at least two things about Jesus. Number one, Jesus cares about our acts of devotion and love, no matter how small or how great they are. And in the case of this woman, Jesus sees straight into her heart And he commends her greatly, for she has done all that she could. Did you catch that? She has done all that she could. This also calls to mind, just a couple chapters back, another woman who has done all that she could. 
a poor widow in chapter 12 who gave all that she had to God and who in Jesus' eyes gave more than anyone that day. And so here again, we really learn what matters to Jesus. What matters is that we demonstrate the supreme worth of God with the little or the plenty that we have, with our talents, whatever they are, whatever our abilities, with whatever resources, with whatever time we've been given, or with whatever life that we have, our calling is to make much of the God who redeems us, for he is worthy. And in these cases, in these cases, it's not Jesus' disciples that get it, nor is it the religious leaders, but it's the woman. It's the woman who get it. And they are lifted up by Jesus as examples to emulate. So make much of God with whatever you have. I think sometimes we are tempted to see our efforts and our sacrificial service to Jesus as making little to no difference at all, or as if it doesn't even matter. But even as Jesus has recognized two women in two chapters who gave all that they could, we recognize that Jesus does in fact, care. So may we not think little of any act of devotion and love to Jesus, for he cares and can use our efforts in greater ways than we could ever possibly imagine or think, even as we see this, these women lifted up here today. Number two, we learn Jesus is in control of everything. Even as the religious leaders prepare for the murder of Jesus, the great irony lies in the fact that Jesus is himself preparing for his own death. Did you catch that? This woman has anointed his body for his coming death. So make no mistake here this morning. Jesus isn't going to his death accidentally. Jesus knows he will die, as he's told us over and over and over again. And he knows exactly what he is doing each and every step of the way. He's in control of all things, even his own coming death. So Jesus is preparing for this great evil act against himself. And though horrific, Jesus will suffer this fate intentionally to bring about the salvation of those who trust him. So while we are sometimes tempted to think that evil is outside of God's control or that it is somehow pointless or meaningless, we recognize that God can and will bring about his glory and our good through it all. We can entrust ourselves to the Father who did not spare his only begotten Son for us. And if God can bring good out of the murder of his own Son, we can trust him to do the same with any evil that may occur to us in this lifetime. For he will bring about perfect healing, justice, and redemption in the end. And so as we see Jesus in control of everything, know that you can trust him. You can trust him with no matter what you are going through with here this morning. For he knows and he's aware. As we started, we remember that the religious leaders are looking for a way to kill Jesus at the beginning of the account. And here, they finally find a way. Without any word of explanation, Mark simply tells us 
that Judas, who is one of the 12 disciples at this moment, goes to the chief priests with the intention of betraying Jesus. And when they find out Judas's willingness, they are ecstatic and they promise him money to do so. And so then Judas looks for every moment from here going forth a way to betray Jesus. And we kind of have to wonder why. Why does Judas at this moment decide to betray Jesus? It could be about the money, but then Judas throws it back later. It could be that Judas sees Jesus as a, a, a failed Messiah. It could be any number of unmentioned reasons. But whatever the reason, Mark doesn't tell us exactly why Judas betrays Jesus. He doesn't. And I think in not giving us a direct reason, each and every one of us here this morning in this room can relate better to Judas than we would like to care or think. If we're told the reason why Judas betrays Jesus, then we might be able to write it off as something we would never dare do or struggle with. But Mark doesn't. And it serves as a warning and example of the betrayal that can occur in each and every one of our hearts here this morning. If it can happen to one of Jesus' closest disciples, then it can happen to any of us. In stark contrast to the woman who sacrificed everything for her love for Jesus, here we find Judas sacrificing Jesus for his love of something else. And we can do exactly the same thing. We can sacrifice and betray Jesus when he gets in the way of comfort, money, riches, fame, popularity, and sexual desires. We can sacrifice and betray Jesus when he doesn't give us a life that we thought we should have or wanted. We can sacrifice and betray Jesus when following him is hard. And when these things happen, and they do, we need to recognize our own Judas-like tendencies in our own hearts and mourn, weep, and repent. But just because we betray Jesus, no matter how bad it might be, doesn't mean we are a lost cause. Know that there is hope. And God, knowing our hearts and our tendency to slip away, gives us a story of one who betrays Jesus and is restored. For there was the disciple Peter, who betrayed Jesus in his denial of him several times. And Jesus doesn't give up to him. Instead, Jesus draws him close to himself. And he loves him and he forgives him. So if you find that you've betrayed Jesus in some way, don't think yourself beyond the reach of God's love and his forgiveness, for he cares about you. In humility, run. Run to Jesus and relate to him, for he is our all-redeeming, precious Lord. So as we close here this morning, I wonder, I wonder how are you relating to Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? And as we remember from the beginning, who you believe Jesus to be will determine how you relate to him. Perhaps you will relate to Jesus as an enemy, like the religious leaders did here in this account. The religious leaders see Jesus as a threat to their control and authority, and they were right to. For Jesus 
threatens all who seek to rule themselves in the way they desire and want alone. He demands that all relinquish their self-rule and to submit to him instead. This is radically offensive and has made many in our world an enemy of Jesus. For in our age, in our culture, we demand that we are the center of our lives and that we alone are the ones who can determine our own meaning and purpose. But make no mistake, we find our meaning and our purpose in the God who created us. And in his ways, there is fullness of life. And to try to go any other way is like a train derailing itself from the track into oblivion. It doesn't know that the track is there for its good. So if you relate to Jesus of the Bible as a threat to your own self-rule, know that what he says and what he does is for your good because he loves you, not because he hates you. God made us in his image, even as we read this morning. And it's in conforming to his image that we are made whole. We are only further broken if we try to remake God into our own image. And our world has been trying to do that ever since the fall. Perhaps you don't relate to Jesus as an all-out enemy like these religious leaders, but perhaps you relate to Jesus like the disciples or the others at that dinner. You know, Jesus is important, but he's not all-important. The disciples have been around Jesus for quite some time, and frankly, they've been kind of desensitized to who he is and his worth. So that when an extravagant act of love is done for Jesus, their first reaction isn't, wow, Jesus is worth everything and more, but it's instead, why would you waste such valuable stuff on Jesus? How inappropriate and foolish. The response is more or less, yeah, Jesus is great, but, you know, not that great. Sometimes we can see great acts of love and devotion to Jesus And if we have hardened hearts, like the disciples and others in that room, we can respond in the same way. But what's really odd, what's truly odd, is not an expression of extravagant love for Jesus, but our failure to express our love for Jesus like he's truly everything to us. Because he should be. After all, he saved us. He redeemed us from an eternity of separation for him. He's given us fullness of joy in him. And sometimes we act as if it's no big deal at all. And we deny what we claim is all important. So I'm not suggesting that we conjure up fake emotions or feelings or put on a facade. But what I am suggesting is that when our hearts grow cold, that we repent of our lack of love and zeal for Jesus, and that we ask for grace to fully appreciate all that God has done for us in Christ. So we can relate to Jesus like the disciples, like the religious leaders. But as I mentioned before, this text urges us to relate to Jesus, to see him as this woman does, as the all-important one who is worth giving everything for. And while I don't have all the answers as to how to best do this, I do have some basic starting questions that we should each consider for ourselves here this morning. If we truly value Jesus as we should, 
it should impact at least three parts of our lives. Our use of time, money, and words. So as we think about our lives displaying Jesus' infinite worth, even as this woman does, do our lives orient themselves towards our all-important Savior and our use of time? On the most basic of levels, do we spend time with Jesus in his word and in prayer on a regular basis? Any meaningful and valuable relationship involves spending time with that person. If I, for instance, never took the time to communicate with my wife, to talk with her, you would be right to tell me I don't value her as I should. And the same is true with our relationship to Jesus. If we never spend time listening to him from his word as we read it, or speaking with him through prayer, then perhaps we don't value Jesus as much as we should. So let's prioritize these means of grace as a starting point. Second, do we spend time with Christ's body, the church? Part of the way that we make much of Christ and value him as we should is by valuing his body, the church. Jesus shed his blood and he died for the church. And so we value those whom he purchased with his own blood. And we spend time with Christ's body and not apart from it. In our gathering together, we say more about the worth of Jesus together than we can separately. And this is what Jesus intended. We collectively point our lights and our hearts toward Jesus and we magnify him for he is greater and more powerful than anything else on this earth. So we show the worth of Christ through the use of our time. We also show the importance of Jesus and the use of our money. Now, I'm not saying you have to spend every dime that you have to display Jesus' infinite worth like this woman did, but I am asking, is there an orientation in the way that you use your resources that shows the valuableness of Jesus? Or does your use of money instead demonstrate that you are the most important and valuable person there is? There's a clear distinction between Judas and this woman in this regard. The woman sacrifices her riches for Jesus. The other sacrifices Jesus for, at a minimum, some money. So let's evaluate our use and pursuit of money and what it says about the importance of Jesus. And then last but not least, our use of words. What we talk about demonstrates what is important to us. So we should evaluate what our conversations revolve around. And again, I'm not saying you have to talk about Jesus 24-7 or have him inserted into every single one of your conversations. But I am asking, do you ever talk about Jesus with anyone? Or is that like a thing you do once a year? Do you talk about what he's been teaching you? How he's been growing you, how he's been helping and sustaining you, how he's blessed you. If Jesus is valuable to us, and if he's supposed to be at the center of our lives, our words and our conversations should relate to him and make much of him. They should speak to his worth as we take our words into consideration for his glory and his honor. So while there are certainly more than just these three basic ways that we can either display the worth of Jesus or deny it by our actions, we should consider what our lives say about the worth 
of Jesus. For he is worth everything. He is the one who died for you and for me. He is the one who lived a perfectly good life and then died and then was raised again. He has won for us a way to relate to him as our all-important, precious Savior and Lord. So my hope, my prayer for this church is that our lives would scream out the infinite worth of Christ truly. May we be those who love Jesus with all of our hearts.